Uh, I'm very glad that Jessica chose Lord Have Mercy uh, to lead us into the sermon. It doesn't just lead us into the message for today, it actually leads us into the season of Lent. Um, if Dave Barker made the observation that sh- many churches tend to observe the Hallmark calendar more than they observe the church calendar. And I, I was convicted of that. I just realized this coming sa- uh, Wednesday is actually Ash Wednesday. Is that correct? Yeah? Yes. Thank you, Matt. At least there's somebody who knows the church calendar <laughs> or the, what we would call the liturgical calendar. It's, it's a time, it's, Ash Wednesday is the official start of Lent, and it's a time to orient ourselves to what is the pivotal moment and pivotal event of the world, the center of the Christian faith, the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we prepare ourselves for Easter, I'll be preaching on the Gospel of Mark, beginning the first Sunday of March, and we will complete our study, or we will end our study on Easter Sunday. So I encourage you to start reading up on the Gospel of Mark. It's a very action-packed, fast-paced book, and so our treatment of Mark is going to be very fast-paced in keeping with the nature of um, Mark's writing. Now, but that's two weeks from now. For now, let's go to Nehemiah chapter 13. And as I prepared for Nehemiah 13, I was reminded of how I felt after I had resigned from my former church and was working through the transition over the six weeks before I came to Crestwick. I had left my former church because I thought, I believed, that I had fulfilled what God had given me to do there. I was not, however, prepared to see how much growth was still needed in the people I was leaving behind. And I found that both disconcerting and humbling. But I should not have been surprised because it is a reality that we will always be in process until Christ returns or calls us home. But as I looked at situations in those last six weeks, I and I could relate to Nehemiah's frustration when he returned to Jerusalem after being absent for some time. So let's read Nehemiah chapter 13, beginning in verse four, uh, verse 6 to the end of the chapter. Uh, on, on second thought, let me start with verse 4. Before this, Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah 
And he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and also the tithes of grain, new wine and olive oil prescribed for the Levites, musicians, and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobias's, Tobias' household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil into the storerooms. I put Shelemiah, the priest, Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms and made Hanan, son of Zachar, the son of Mataniah, their assistant, because they were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their fellow Levites. Remember thee for this, my God, and do not blot out what I have done, what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. In those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grape, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing you're doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same things so that our God brought all this calamity on us and on this city? Now you're stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. 
But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Joiada, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat, the Horonite, and I drove him away from him, from me. Remember them, my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to his own task. I also made provision for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. Remember me with favor, my God. After the wall had been inaugurated, chapter 12, and the people had renewed their covenant commitment, Nehemiah had probably served as governor for some years before returning to his post as cupbearer to Artaxerxes in keeping with his commitment in chapter 2, verse 6. So we, we can imagine, we can assume that Nehemiah might have served as governor for about 10 years in order to um, solidify the changes, the reforms that he had instituted to follow God's word. And then he went back. And after going back to his post as cupbearer, he decided, let me check on how the people are. And when he returned to, his, to Jerusalem, he was horrified. The people had become unfaithful yet again. And as if that were not painful enough, the people were not just unfaithful, the priests were in league with the very people who had opposed the rebuilding of the wall. You see in chapter 13, verse 4, that Eliashib, the priest, had given room to Tobiah the Ammonite. And then in verse uh, 28, his son was married to one of the daughters of Sanballat, the Horonite. And Eliashib had even defiled the temple by allowing Tobiah to, to have storage space designated for the offerings of the people in the temple. Imagine that. Eliashib, the high priest, prioritizes friendship with a pagan who had opposed the work of God over faithfulness to God. And if Tobiah had enough influence to have a room in the temple, that would be akin to Al-Qaeda having an office at Parliament Hill. Then you can imagine that Tobiah must have had influence in other areas of the people's lives. In fact, if you look at Nehemiah chapter 6, you realize that that was one of the challenges that Nehemiah faced. Nehemiah 6, 17 to 19. Also in those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah, and replies from Tobiah kept coming for, to them. For many in Judah were under oath to him, since he was son-in-law to Shechaniah, son of Ara, and his son Jehohanan had married the daughter of Meshulam, son of Berechiah. Moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds, and then telling, me, telling him what I said. And Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. As much as Nehemiah had tried to reform the people, there was that underlying influence that was undercutting his efforts 
And then it is no surprise then in verse, chapter 13, verse 10 and 11, that the people had not kept their commitment to support the worship of the temple. And so they stopped giving the contributions they had promised in chapter 10. So the temple services were neglected because the Levites and musicians had to go back to their fields to support themselves and their families. In fact, as you read chapter 13 and compare it with the commitments that they made in chapter 10, you realize that the people had broken every single vow that they had made. It's almost as if they had made their promises in order to break them. They had promised to trust God and put Him first by keeping the Sabbath holy. But here we find in verse 15 and 16 that they were conducting business on the Sabbath. They had promised to maintain their purity by not intermarrying with the pagan nations around them. But in verse 23, we find out that the men of Judah had married pagan women yet again. And it's, it's, it was very disconcerting for Nehemiah because Ezra, when he arrived in Jerusalem, 25 years, 13 years before Nehemiah arrived, so this is 25 years previous, Ezra had to deal with the same problem. And yet, 25 years later, it's back. And the problem is so bad that the family of the high priest, Eliashib, had even married into the family of Sanballat the Horonite, their sworn enemy. And here's the worst part. Notice in verse 24. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. You know what that meant? That meant that the kids were not being taught God's word. These children were being raised as pagans. So that Nehemiah recognizes that yet again, the nation was in danger of falling under God's judgment for breaking the covenant. They were in danger of losing their identity yet again. And Nehemiah must have been really frustrated because this comes after a tremendous revival just 10 years before. Now they manage to reach a new low. And it seemed as if Nehemiah's efforts had been in vain. How do you, do, how do you respond to a situation like that where you're in the place of Nehemiah? Well, look at verse 14, verse 22, and verse 31. Nehemiah found comfort and strength in God being his audience of one. Over and over, he says, remember me for this, my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done in the house of my God and its services. And that's ultimately where you and I need to focus too. Every time I leave a church, I have to bring my frustrations over unfinished business to God and trust that God would take care of things because it is His church. And I have to say, you know, even here at Crestwick, whatever I feel is yet to be done, I have to remind myself, this is God's church, 
it is his work, his purposes and not mine will prevail. We can work and we need to work as hard as we can, remembering that the results are up to God. And that should be our comfort and confidence as we seek to be the kind of base camp and lighthouse that God wants us to be. See, we can, be, we can get frustrated at the lack of response from people or the slow pace of change in people's lives. Why don't they get this? But we can rest in our sovereign God because our God is at work in ways that we cannot see or understand. And though others may not know or even appreciate what we are doing, we need to understand and remember God knows our efforts. And ultimately, it is God's approval that matters. And that's what kept Nehemiah from, fall, from jumping off a cliff. He remembered, God, remember me. Remember me with favor, my God. It's, it's your work and it's your approval that matters. And in this, in this life, none of us will ever get the credit that we think we deserve. Sometimes because we, over, we overestimate our efforts and sometimes because people don't know how much you and I have done. But our confidence is that when we stand before the righteous judge of the universe, that's the only verdict that matters. When the king says, well done, good and faithful servant. And that's, that's really what we aim for, isn't it? That's what we long for. Now, this account of Nehemiah reminds us that the scriptures give us the unvarnished truth. It gives us an accurate vision of reality. Because the human authors are writing under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and they are determined to give us a theological account of history that refuses to whitewash the failings or foibles of people. That's from Genesis to Revelation. It is completely honest and realistic about the people whom we would think of as heroes of the faith. And there's a very good reason for that. Nehemiah 13 is meant to point us to a very sobering reality. That faithfulness to God is a continuing battle. We live in a world that is hostile to holiness. You can never drift into godliness. And it is never enough to hold still. We have to keep growing in holiness because complacency easily sets in. And just as Tobiah gained the place in the temple in the heart of Jerusalem because of his connection with Eliashib, we can be led astray by our friendships instead of being a godly witness to our friends. Now, some of us have responded by having only Christian friends, but I'm sorry, that falls short of our calling to be salt and light in the world. In the first place, that's not what Jesus did. Jesus was known as the friend of sinners. And in the first place, even if we only had Christian friends, 
We would still have to deal with the persistent presence of sin in our Christian friends. And we would still have to deal with the persistent presence of sin in our own hearts. You see, what led the people to break their vow to keep Sabbath was not the presence of pagan merchants. It was their unwillingness to trust that God would provide. It was a heart issue. As Matthew Levering would say, the making of money and the convenience of commerce trump the worship of God. Or to put it more bluntly, they just loved money more than they loved God. And we face the same temptation, don't we? Maybe not the love of money, but the love of something other than the love of God. And so Nehemiah takes action. We are told that he threw out the goods of Tobiah and he had the rooms fumigated or purified. Then he called the people back to their vows. He corrected every breach of promise. Verse 11, verse 17, verse 25, he rebuked the guilty parties and he didn't just talk. He put measures in place to help them obey. So in verse 13, we are told that he put trustworthy men in charge of distributing the offerings. I put Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Pediah in charge of the storerooms and made Hanan son of Zachar, son of Mataniah, their assistant, because they were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their fellow Levites. And then he stopped commerce on the Sabbath and assigned Levites to guard the gates, verse 19 to verse 22, even threatening to arrest the pagan merchants who were camping outside of Jerusalem the day before Sabbath. And then verse 25, he publicly rebuked the men who were married to pagan women, and such was the rebuke. Uh, look at verse 25. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. Can you imagine? Now, you might say, whoa, 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 that sounds like abuse, right? Um, it sounds like abuse, but this actually is what you might call a shaming ritual. Nehemiah was acting that way, not, not just to, to, in order to make the people understand how shameful their actions had been so that they might be convicted of their sin. They were necessary measures because this came down to faithfulness to God. And perhaps one might say that our, our reluctance to have the kind of Anger and indignation that Nehemiah had is a reflection of our own complacency towards sin, of our lack of commitment towards God. See, Nehemiah had the passion and the courage to correct sin because he cared most for God's approval. That's why that refrain in verse 14, in verse 22, and in verse 31 are so important. We see the motivation behind Nehemiah's actions. 
He wanted God to approve of him. He wanted to be faithful to God. He wasn't trying to earn God's favor. He was simply recognizing that the mercy that God had shown demanded absolute submission to God's purposes. God's grace teaches us to fear the Lord. To honor him so much, we would deal decisively with sin because his pleasure has become our main priority. Whereas the book of Romans would say, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. Now perhaps part of the reason the people backslid was that they had lost sight of their ultimate reason for being a people. If you look back at the covenant commitments in chapter 10, there was something missing. They did not commit themselves to being a light to the nations. And because they lost sight of their ultimate purpose from God, they could not sustain their commitments. As Dean Ulrich points out, God continually says throughout the Bible, here is what I have done for you. Now treat others as I have treated you. Joy is not an exclusive or private reaction to God's goodness. It cannot be contained but has to be shared. Joy is incomplete without mission. And because the community did not commit themselves to sharing their joy with the nations, I think they lost sight of their own joy. And that led them to become unfaithful. And that's why I'm so glad that Crestwick is committed to being a base camp for believers and a lighthouse for the lost. It is critical that we fulfill these twin mandates of discipleship and evangelism. See, if we neglect discipleship for evangelism, we become a mile wide and an inch thick we'll ultimately lose our ability to minister effectively in changing times. We become like an athlete who works out so much, he starves himself to death. Now, if we neglect evangelism to focus on ourselves, we become arrogant couch potatoes who fight over non-essentials. But as we seek to do both well, God grows us in ways we had never imagined. Now, let me say, though, that part of the reason why Nehemiah ends, Ezra Nehemiah ends this way is to point us to the fact that Ezra and Nehemiah's efforts were never going to be enough. Good laws and proper governance could not change people's behavior then or now. If there's anything we need to take away from the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, it is that a deeper change is needed. Not geographic, not political, not socioeconomic. The people kept failing because their hearts were unchanged. Sin had too much of a grip. The old covenant could not change the people. 
It could only show their sinfulness. Then as now, no amount of human effort, no matter how fervent, could change the human heart. Only God can accomplish the transformation. And that's why God promised the new covenant in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. It's interesting because Jeremiah was the prophet just before the exile. Ezekiel writes during the exile. And they both promise the new covenant. In the new covenant, Ezekiel 36, 24 to 27, God promises the forgiveness of sins. God promises new hearts. More than that, God promises that he would give his spirit so that his people would be able to obey. Within that new covenant, the promises of the new covenant is God's commitment to address the root of the problem, the sinfulness of the human heart. And in this, God is acting out of his unfailing covenant love. As Martin Luther would say, the love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to him. And that's the wonder of God's goodness and grace, isn't it? Let me say that again. The love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to him. And that is a promise. That is an action that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's why he came. When Jesus told Nicodemus that he needed to be born again of water and spirit, he was referring back to Ezekiel 36, 24 to 27, to God's promise of the sprinkling that would be the forgiveness of sin and of the giving of new hearts and the gift of the spirit. Because no matter how hard you try, you're never going to be good enough. Only Jesus could make us acceptable to God. So that if, if you're here and you want to be accepted by God, you need to put your trust in him. You need to entrust yourself to him. Because the only way we could be forgiven is by the death of Jesus Christ. That's the only sacrifice that satisfies the justice of God. And that's why Jesus died on the cross. And in rising again, we are given new life and new hearts. Through faith in him, we are united with Christ. And in his rising, as he, raised, he rose again to bring in the new creation, you and I are made new creations. See, this is the glorious promise of the gospel. This is what Nehemiah 13 is meant to drive us towards. The fact that nothing can change people but God. That's why there's a new covenant. That's why there's the gospel. This is what changes people. But you might say, well, RJ, I've been a believer for a long time and I don't seem to be making much progress. I hear you. I feel you. I'm a long way from where I need to be. And I'm not surprised because we live in what is called the already and not yet. We have been given new hearts. The spirit is living in us, but he is still in the process of renovating us from within. 
Ephesians chapter 3 talks about the Spirit dwelling, that Christ would dwell in our hearts by faith. It's the language of someone making himself at home in our hearts. And um, I borrowed this from Don Carson. Imagine moving into your first home. Some of you can remember that. It was all you could afford. So it wasn't big enough. It wasn't quite the way you wanted it. The roof was leaking. The wallpaper was abominable. The flooring was terrible. But that's all you could afford. So you move in. And over time, as you live in that house, you begin to make changes. You begin to renovate the kitchen. You begin to change the flooring. You change the wallpaper. Maybe you paint it. You change the roof. You change the heating, cooling system. And 25, 30, 40 years later, anybody who goes into your house knows, oh, this is David Ames' house because it reflects his personality. And that's what God is still in the process of doing in each one of us. He's still renovating us. You might also think of it as being engaged to be married. You're already promised to be wed, but you don't enjoy the benefits of being married. That's where we all are. And so, I hope you understand this. We need more than reminders. See, we need to be repentant. That's why Martin Luther said, repentance must be a lifestyle for the believer. We often think of a reminder as something that says, try harder. And you know what happens after you've tried harder for three days, right? Or three weeks. You get tired and you give it up. What we need is repentance that leads us back to Christ and his cross. And that's why God put us in community. Because we need one another. We need people like Nehemiah who will confront us with our sin, who will not just remind us to be better, who will love us enough to say, brother, sister, what you're doing does not please God. And hopefully you will not need to have your hair pulled out in order to be repentant. <laughs> but we need people who will remind, who will call us out for our sin. But who will not stop there. Who as they call us out will point us to Christ so that we could deal with our sin. And it will always be painful. But to the extent that we humble ourselves and seek to be open and accountable to our brethren, to our brothers and sisters, we further the process of being made new. See, look, however old you are, however old you are in the faith, you will always need correction. Because in this life, we will never be perfect. And that's why in this life, we are called to strive continually to grow. As a church, we need to be the church reformed and always being reformed according to the word of God. 
And that's why Paul in Philippians 2.12 would describe it as working out our salvation. Now, please, prepositions are very important. Notice, work out your salvation, not work for your salvation. See, if the goal of salvation is that we look like Jesus, then God's work of grace giving us new hearts and giving us a spirit should result in us looking more and more like Jesus. And becoming more like Jesus is the result, the outworking of our being in saving relationship with Jesus. But again, change does not come naturally. That's why Paul says, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Growth demands our wholehearted effort to respond to the grace of God by giving ourselves to growth, by reading our Bible, by praying, by being in fellowship with other believers in the church, by giving people the gospel, and by serving others. Now, some might say, well, I've been doing that, and I still fail. Again, working out our salvation is not a matter of trying harder. It is about repenting of our sin and working out the good news that we have received salvation. In other words, it's about embracing the gospel, the good news of what God has done in Christ. This is what Jerry Bridges says in his book, Respectable Sins. If you haven't read that book, please read it. If there's only one book you will read aside from the Bible this year, make it Respectable Sins. He says, the first use of the gospel as a remedy for our sins is to plow the ground of our hearts so that we can see our sin. Second, not only does the gospel prepare me to face my sin, it also frees me up to do so. To the extent that I grasp in the depths of my being this great truth of God's forgiveness of my sin through Christ, I will be freed up to honestly and humbly face the particular manifestations of sin in my life. Third, the gospel motivates and energizes me to deal with my sin. See, the gospel orients us to God's love that sent Jesus to the cross and paid for our sins. And the love of Christ moves us to love him back and gives us the strength to follow him. It motivates us because Christ's love changes our hearts to delight in what God loves. And above all, the gospel promises us that we will be able to work out our salvation. And it's not because we've tried hard enough. But notice what Philippians 2.13 says. Because it is God who works in us to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. See, ultimately, our confidence doesn't lie in our efforts, in our willpower, in our being in community, in our knowledge of theology. All those things are helpful. But our confidence lies in God's commitment 
to make us like Jesus. As Paul would say in Philippians chapter 1, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun the good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ. He is determined to make us look like Jesus. And it is that hope that strengthens us to keep working out our salvation by the grace that God provides. And so as a church, I hope that as we face the coming days, we would embrace our calling to be a base camp for believers and a lighthouse for the lost. And it begins with us delighting in God by embracing the gospel so that our delight in Christ would spill out, overflow in our interactions with everyone around us. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you. We thank you for this awesome reality that your love does not seek, but rather creates that which is pleasing to you. For if you were to look for anything pleasing in us, there would not be anything that would be pleasing. We thank you that your love creates that which is pleasing to you. For you have caused us to be born again to a living hope through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You have given us new life. You have Enable us to have faith in Jesus by opening the eyes of our hearts to see his glory and beauty so that we would trust in him. Father, first of all, we pray for those who are here who do not know you, who reject your grace. We pray that you would open their eyes to see the beauty of Jesus so that they may be saved. And for those of us who put our faith in Jesus Christ, Father, help us to recognize how often we take for granted the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of Christ. How often we allow ourselves to get distracted, to focus on the wrong things instead of keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. Help us, Father, ask your people to fix our eyes on Christ so that the beauty and majesty of our Savior would expose our sin. And as our sin is exposed, let the beauty of Jesus draw us back to him as we recognize that he has paid even for these sins so that the reality of his love might help us to understand more fully the depths of his love to know that this same Jesus died for our very sins so that our love for him might be strengthened, that our desires, that our affections might be transformed and aligned to your desires so that we as a church might truly be a light in this city and around the world. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.